Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the extravaganza. Once again, these stories have to be true and about you. If you know somebody or if you want to tell a story on one of these nights, feel free to hit me up, ladies and gentlemen. We're doing a, a tandem storytelling night next week. There's going to be two people telling stories at the same time for all the stories. So that should be that should be fun. That should be interesting. I forgot my bell, so it's a little weird. I usually have my bell here. I train myself with it pretty much more than anything else. Um, I'm excited for all the storytellers tonight. Um, once again, Breckenridge Bourbon is amazing. It sponsors the night, so uh, drink up. $10 old-fashioned, $6 shots. And the cheese stands alone, everybody knows is awesome. So I don't have to say that, even though I just did. Um, we have a couple, let's see, we have two second-time storytellers, one first-time storytellers, and uh, nobody likes to go first, so I think I, I dug this one out of my back pocket, so I'm gonna do one tonight, so here we go, ding. I feel like I was basically born to book bands and put on events, to I have to explain. I have a healthy love for live music, which is normal, but my father being a car salesman and my mother being an art dealer and mixed with love of music, basically, I'm the sum of those, those parts, you know? I didn't really get to realize it till uh, I was about in my mid-20s, back when I was living in San Diego, booking the little bar that I've mentioned before, a little shithole called The Dog in uh, San Diego. 75 capacity, um, two pool tables, just mostly locals, jukebox, this is the 90s, so it was always either like Offspring or Sublime was playing. <laughs> Ad nauseum, my God, I hate Offspring now so much. <laughs> so I wanted to start having bands there, and even though it was tiny, my roommate at the time was the front man, a guitar player, singer for one of the most popular bands in San Diego, uh, a band called Super Unloader. Whenever they played, it was super packed. Marcel's heard them. And they were just the shit at the time, they rabid fans. And he's also became one of my best friends to this day. And I went to him, I said, Jimmy, um, do me a favor, man. Start doing bands, I wanna have a splash. Can you guys play a Saturday for me, please? I'll just do like $5 cover. I'll get you guys drinks, weed, whatever. I said, sure, no problem. As predicted, well, first we had to figure out how to get the pool tables out. That was the thing, me and the doorman, Big Mike, but we figured that out. Well, there's a will, there's a way. Uh, the show was great. It was awesome, as predicted. Unpredictably, they loved it, and they wanted to do it again. They liked the proximity with the people instead of being on a stage. It was a cool thing. And also, I was playing harmonica with them pretty regularly at the time as well. I was sitting in on songs that I could handle. And uh, so I kind of got known for being in that band. And at the time in San Diego, there's a lot of animosity between the bands and the venues mainly the booking agents. Nobody trusted the booking agents in San Diego, but the bands knew me from around, and they trusted me, and they wanted to play for me, and I took care of them, even though they got less money. Um, so all of a sudden, I'm getting all the cool bands in town are playing my little shithole, and all the big clubs are like, who the fuck is this Eric kid that's get, get these bands to play there? We know what these bands usually make. There's no way he can pay them that with a $5 cover. So basically, I wind up getting poached, uh, long story short, I get poached. Uh, there's a band called uh, the biggest live met music venue in Pacific Beach, which is the, center, the section of town that I lived in. 
It's called Blind Melons. It wasn't another 90s reference. It's actually Cheech and Chong reference why that was called that. Now, that was a seven-night-a-week venue. Well, I'm just starting out, and this is a trial by fire because the owners of this place were both engineers, Scott Slaga and Mike Stefano. They were engineers for, they designed aircraft, aircraft wings for F-15 fighters. They're very smart. And every Wednesday I had a meeting with them and I had to come up with something called the Delta, which was the money at the door versus the money that we're paying the bands versus the bar. And if that Delta was in the negative, I was in for a long meeting with a lot of yelling. And it was gnarly. Things got thrown around. It was nuts. Uh, but I learned a lot. And then they bought another club called Winston's in Ocean Beach. So I'm 26 running around, kind of basically pre-functional internet, doing this. Two seven-night-a-week venues, busting my ass. Um, how's that drink coming, Christian? All right, thanks. I was just wondering. It's <laughs> getting a little, you know. Um, so I'm like, I get a little big for my britches. I'm going to put on a big event, a big show with one of my favorite bands, Fishbone. Yeah, yeah Fishbone, one of my favorite all-time bands to see live especially. And I had a connection because a good friend of mine at college, Naja Thomas, she sung background vocals on Reality in My Surroundings. And um, so I went up, long story short, thank you very much. Oh, like I was going to fall down. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. It's Uncle Scotchy. Got to do the cheers. So I, I land them, and I booked them at a really great venue downtown called Fourth and B, right in the middle of downtown. It was uh, used to be a bank, and I go to Mike Stefano for some tips. Uh, it was my first big show. I borrowed a shitload of money for this show. What do I do? And Stefano goes to me sits down, he's a big guy. So do you want this show to sell out? I'm like, absolutely. I don't want to line people down the block that can't get in. He goes, no, then you fucked up. If you do a show right, the holy grail to booking a show is you have one unsold ticket in your hand. If there's a line of people down the street, you didn't charge enough or you advertise too much. If you set it right to how much you charge at the door, to how much that band is worth to people and your advertising budget and all your costs, one unsold ticket in your hand. And uh, I definitely didn't do it for this particular show because one week later, Southern Comfort decided to book a big street festival literally blocks from my venue with Buddy Guy and George Clinton and P-Funk. The same night. And I already have deposits down, Fishbones got their tour routed. This shit's happening. So I'm sending runners the night of the show over to the festival to give these little flyers. They can get in for half off if they have a ticket. And I'm sending Fishbone over in a, in, a, in a car to hopefully maybe get some of P-Funk involved just to make it a cool show. It's my first big show. Um, then there's a knock on the door backstage. I open it up. George Clinton's standing there with a hot blonde and like all of P-Funk is behind him. It's gotta be all of them. There was like 20 motherfuckers. And I'm, come on in. They, they ate all my food and then they freaking got on stage with Fishbone. For the first time they ever played with Fishbone. It was pretty epic. It was epic. And I was sitting there defeated. I know I had lost thousands of month, dollars. It's not my money. And I went up into the upper deck that was obviously empty. I mean, there were some people, but I wasn't what I needed. And I just sat there and decided to enjoy it. And uh, in the future, I got better at it and I made some money. I wound up learning how to do it. So I learned a lot of things the hard way. So then I moved to Miami, and I started booking places like Bougainvillea's, 
And then I booked the stage, which is where I met Ben and Sasha, the owners of this fine establishment who aren't here. Um, that's where I started working with them. I booked the last three years of Tobacco Road. I booked Will Call. I booked uh, Winwood Yard, Las Rosas for a cup of coffee. And, uh, but I really started really enjoying more doing these one-off events that I started doing bigger shows. I did a thing called Swamp Stomp. Then I started working, doing some shows for um, Dan Lebetard, the Dan Lebetard show. I did some events for him. And, uh, but what really, really put some money in my pockets that was great was these pre-cruise shows that I would do. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, there's a lot of cruises that go out of Miami that are cruise-themed events. There's like the Kid Rock cruise, and it'll be Kid Rock and a bunch of other, like 30 other cracker-ass bands. Or it'll be, you know, Melissa Etheridge cruise, you know, um, Kiss cruise. Uh, you get the vibe. Basically, the guy Tanner from the cruise company would call me up. I got this cruise, leave it on this day. This is the pre. Here's some bands that you can use. You make the deal with the agents, connect you with the agent. It's the only sanctioned show from the cruise. So there's 3,000 people in town that need something to do, and their favorite bands are playing at one place that are going to be on the cruise. And the bands, I get them on the cheap because they don't have shit to do the night before either. So I just basically have to get them backline. Backline meaning uh, drums, keyboards, amps, because a lot of times they're just going to get on the boat the next day with their, you know, with their guitar. So I get a call from Tanner. He's like, hey, there's this guy. He's kind of weird. Um, he's got a lot of money, and he wants to do the Outlaw Country Cruise pre-party. There's a lot of rockabilly bands and stuff like that, a lot of old school bands, too. Um, this would not be a sanctioned event, just so you know. But he has deep pockets. He wants to do this show. Uh, he needed somebody in Miami. He's in Texas. So he needs somebody to help put this show on. Do you mind if I connect you? I said, no problem. So I talked to the guy. Sure enough, he sounds pretty full of shit. A guy named Jay Jones. There we go. Um, Jay's talking about all, he wants 30 bands. He's got the Magic City Casino reserved. Three stages, a stage in the middle of the track, a stage in the event center, and a stage up in the, in the, in the rafters. And he's dropping names, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson might be there. He's, he's saying it's a, it's a benefit for Eddie Spaghetti from the Super Suckers, who's one of the, the performers of, at this. So I'm like, he's like, how much you need? I'm like, I don't know, man, four grand, send me two grand now. He's like, done. I'm like, fuck, I should ask for more money, man. He said that shit way too fast. Sends me the two grand. I'm like, I guess I'm working for this guy. So this is November. The show's in February. I go meet with the girl at Magic City. We go over some logistics. I don't really know much yet. It's getting closer and closer. And the way things work is uh, he's supposed to come out two weeks before the boat, before the show. He doesn't. It's getting closer. I'm getting lots of emails from tour managers. The way it works for these shows is about a week or two before a show, a tour manager will reach out to you and do something called advance the show. They want to know what time everybody's supposed to be there, the situation, if everything's covered on the rider, the back line proper, all that stuff. I don't know any of this shit. I don't know when anybody's going on. I don't know nothing. I'm stalling like, Jay, when you coming, man? Oh, I'm coming, just me and my wife. She's having some problems with her back. I don't want to hear about her fucking back at all. I'm trying to be nice. It's, it's getting closer and closer. And uh, it's a couple days before the show. He's still not here. Um, I go and I meet with the girl at Magic City Casino. She's kind of looking at me a little different. She's a little suspect. She's like, uh, I'm like, how many people bought tickets for the show? 
She's like, oh, about a hundred. I'm like, this is a $250,000 show. It was a quarter million dollar show. I saw, anybody know who Delbert McClinton is? Exactly. <laughs> Delbert McClinton's supposed to play. He's this old, old school songwriter, performer guy. He's real good. But he's, I saw his contract. He's getting 50 grand. Just Delbert's 70-year-old ass is getting 50 grand. So it's like, there's a lot of money that's going to happen. So he shows up the day before the show. And I go to meet him at the Marriott by the airport. And I can't find him at first. Why? Because there's hundreds of musicians in the lobby. Because he fucked up and the musicians can't get into the rooms. And there's no rooms reserved. Just more red flags are just flying all over the place. I finally meet the guy. He looks like a big 400-pound pile of mashed potatoes. He's just this big, bald, white dude with really bad tattoos. He looks pouty. He's, he looks like a huge baby. And his, his wife ain't right either. And I'm like, dude, I need you to pay Lennox, my production guy, because there's an extensive list of backline that's supposed to be at this show. I go, oh, I'll pay him, I'll pay him. And meanwhile, bands are yelling at him, they're mad at him. He wants to make this one stage because there's supposed to be a storm coming. So he's got bands that he's paying to not play. And the whole thing's nuts. And I go up to him, and I wind up getting drunk with the Super Suckers and Jesse Dayton, the guy that wrote the True Blood theme song, and he was a cool guy. Um, so I'm like, I got to go home, get some sleep. So I go to Jay, I'm like, Jay, I need the rest of my money if we're going to do this. How much do I owe you? Two grand. He's like, how about 1500 I'm like, okay. Go. Gives me the check for 1500 I leave. Um, I go to sleep very scared. I wake up 5.30 in the morning with a message from Lennox, my production guy. This guy did not pay his deposit. There will be no production at this event. And no production at 5.30 in the morning of the show. Now, I had hired the great Birdman to do sound, to be my sound man for this, from this established. That's right. That's the appropriate response. I call Birdman at like 5.30 in the morning. And I'm like, dude, we need some backline. He pulls the most Miami shit. He hauls ass to Hialeah. And for 300 bucks, he has a shitty drum kit, a bass amp, and a guitar amp. So we're in business that way. So I'm like, okay, I got to make one stop before I get this casino. I'm going to my bank. Because if this shit doesn't cash, I'm not going into this nightmare at all. So I go to the bank, cashes. Guess I'm working today. Oh, so I, well, you'll see. Um, I get there, and all the bands and the people that are supposed to be in the show are outside. Why? Dude fucked up again and didn't finalize all his insurance. They're not even letting anybody in the venue. All right? So he's working on that. I run to the store and buy like 10 cases of water for everybody because it's hot and this is a mess. Um, finally, he gets everybody in. We get everybody in at like 10. No, 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 later than 10, like almost 11. The show's supposed to start at 12. Noon to midnight, 12 hours. Okay? There's a bunch of people that are from Sweden and all over. They're pissed off because whatever band they came to see isn't going to play. More yelling's happening. I go inside. I'm trying to re fuck this Jay guy. I'm just handling this shit, whatever. What he says, I'm going to ignore, and this is just going to happen. I'm going to take charge. All right? I'm trying to schedule a set list. Bands are yelling at me at all sides, all sides. And there's a guy named Dale Watson. He's a very, very famous, very, very charming country star. Big white pompadour. Google him. He's a charming man. And uh, he has the respect of everybody. He's one of the 
the elders there. And he happens to be actually, at the time, he's married actually to a friend of mine named Celine Lee from Miami. And he knew my situation. And uh, all the bands are yelling at me. He stops and he's, wait a minute. Everybody stop. It's not this man's fault. But if we want this shit to happen, this is the only man that's going to be able to do it. So you listen to him or you talk to me. And everybody has stopped. And I look at Dale, and he kind of just, like, gave me a little wink. And I'm just, like, lost in his green eyes. I just have the biggest man crush on this guy. He's the most awesome dude. Everybody would listen to me for the rest of the fucking day. We did 20-minute sets. We're talking, like, $50,000 bands. 20-minute sets for 12 hours. We got all 20 bands on and off stage just till midnight when the curfew was. We did it. I went home. And I just curled up in bed for like a day. I couldn't even move. I was so sore. And then lastly, I go to Publix a couple days later to buy food as people do in Publix. And um, card got declined. Insufficient funds. What? Turns out, in my bank, it was a Saturday. They know me. They gave me the cash for the check. They tried to contact his bank multiple times. He didn't pay. They pulled that shit out. So I was crushed and defeated. I did all that shit basically for nothing, but I'm still strangely proud of what happened, and I think all that happened before that gave me the skill set to pull that shit off, with Birdman, of course. So thank you. That's my story about that. The next guy up, uh, this is his second story. He has an unusual name, and if you on the podcast, his last story, uh, he told you how he got his unusual name. But he's a good dude. I've known him for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the great Namdef Lisman. Namdef. Have fun, buddy. Hello, friends. All right. Cool. So, yeah, my name is Namdev Lisman. Uh, this story is called The Beastie Boys Shaved My Head. Um... Has anybody ever heard of Camp Woodward? Yeah, okay, cool. So Camp Woodward, if you don't know, is like the premier training grounds for all extreme sports. So skateboarding, snowboarding, BMX, mountain biking. Now they got like parkour and stuff. And so this camp is like unbelievable. It's, uh, it's, it's got the most unbelievable facility. They got ramps, they've got, you know, everything you could possibly imagine to practice all these types of extreme sports. Um, there's been pros that have gone there as, as campers and have turned out to be like, you know, the most famous uh, pros out there. People like Ryan Nyquist, Paul Rodriguez, uh, Travis Pastrama. So yeah, it's like, it's serious shit, this place. So I got to go there. 33 years ago. It was the summer of 1987. I was nine years old. I was an athlete, a dreamer. I was flexible. I was fearless. And I was driven. I was driven to become a world-class gymnast. Yeah, I said gymnast, like gymnastics. So that's the roots of this camp. It started as a gymnastics facility where Olympic athletes would come and they would train the younger gymnasts uh, to come up and become you know, Olympians. And uh, I can just think of it now. I, oh, God, it's like I'm there. Um, 
these, these gymnasts were like gods to me, right? So I got to go there and I had my leotard, my little shorts for floor exercise. And then when we got to do the high bar or the pommel horse or the rings, I got to wear like these super tight pants too. So it was, it was unbelievable, you know, and it was my first time leaving my home and going to a camp, you know, and that's the first time, you know, you, you get all these new experiences, right? Like I got homesick, I met different strangers, you know, met some girls, and uh, got to make a lot of these decisions on my own for my first time. So, you know, there was a lot of great decisions I made. Like I walked up to Tim Daggett, who's uh, an Olympian, and I gave him a high five. I'm like, man, you're the shit, dude. You know, you're so good. And I felt that was a good decision. But then there were some bad decisions, too. But this one bad decision changed my life for the better. And uh, that's what I'm going to tell you the story about. So in our, in our bunk, you know, you got, this was a bunk for kids that were 9 years old to 13 years old. And we really all bonded uh, at night when it was lights out and we would all talk shit. You know, we would talk about, you know, gymnastics. We would talk about, you know, movies. We would talk about, you know, all types of things. But the conversation always ended with the hot topic of boobies. So as little kids, you know, we're all talking about boobies, you know, how we're going to touch boobies. And, you know, one day we're going to get boobies and we're going to, you know, squeeze them and stuff. And, you know, but, but how do you touch boobies? You know, at, you know what, what, type of, what type of man do you have to be? What type of boy do you have to be in order to touch boobies? So you need muscles. You need a tank top. You need tight jeans. But you have to have, oh, Oakley sunglasses, razors were like fucking the best thing ever. But you had to have a fucking dope haircut. Now, I'm nine years old. I had this spiky haircut. And in the back, I had a weak-ass rat tail. Does anybody remember rat tails? So I had this really, just, it was horrible. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't long enough to be actually called a rat tail. It was just kind of like this little poof off the back. And, um, you know, so all the guys were telling me, like, man, kid, if you ever want to touch boobies, you got to fix your hair, man, because with that hairstyle, it's never going to happen. And I'm like, oh, shit, man, you know, I got to touch boobies, man. So I got to touch boobies. I, I got to get a haircut. How the hell do I get a haircut? I'm here at camp. And the older kids just said, no, 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 don't worry about it. I got you. So two cabins down, this is where all the BMX kids were, were, were stationed in. Um, you know, this was like the first year that BMX really got brought into Woodward. So, you know, they would start using all the facilities for the gymnastics, like the big foam pits to start doing backflips in them and, and training them. So they were saying, all right, I'm going to hook you up, but there's this one kid in the next, in two cabins over who has a pair of clippers, and he's going to give you the right haircut. And with this haircut, even though you don't have muscles, you don't have a tank top, you don't have Oakley sunglasses you're going to be able to touch boobies with a dope haircut. So, okay, okay, all right, come on, guys, set me up, set me up. And they, uh, so the next day, they're like, all right, we spoke to the kid. It costs five bucks. So I'm like, all right, I got five bucks, you know. So they make the appointment for me, and I, I walk over to, uh, to the other camp, uh, cabin, you know, and I walk in with my five bucks. 
And uh, there's this kid there, and he's 15 years old. He's got, like, just, like, the early mustache coming on. And he looks like he was in the movie Rad, uh, if anybody you ever saw that. Yeah, right. So uh, he says, all right, kid, come here, sit down. You know, I'm going to hook you up, man. I'm going to give you the best haircut you've ever had, man. You're this much closer to boobies. And I sit down, and I hear, I hear the, the buzz. And it's coming closer to my head, and zoop, there goes the fucking rat tail, right? And uh, he keeps going higher and higher and over, and my hair's flying everywhere. I got really thin hair. It's like baby hair. So when you put a clipper directly to it basically shaves it clean to the scalp so i hear some other kids laughing and and i'm and i'm you know i can't see anything so i'm going on oh, i guess you know like well, he's giving me a sweet do you know i'm gonna look like tim daggett you know it was a nice little fade real short on top and uh you know the laughter gets louder and louder and then uh he turns off the clippers and kind of walks over in front of me and he goes kid I'm really fucking sorry, man. I'd never cut hair like yours before. Uh, you can keep your five bucks, and I'm, and I'm going to give you a gift. And I'm like, oh, okay, sweet. You know, I got my five bucks back. I can go get a Coca-Cola maybe later. And, uh, and he's like, do you have a Walkman? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I got a Walkman. I didn't have a Walkman. He's like, oh, I got this gift for you, right? I'm like, okay, killer. He hands me a cassette tape. And I look at the cassette tape, and I'm like, all right, cool. I put it in my pocket, and he's like, now get the fuck out of here. I'm like, oh, shit, okay. So I leave, and I'm walking back to my cabin, and I, I hear the laughter. You know, I'm going, oh, my God, what do these guys do? You know, like, I could feel my head, and it was like nothing on my hair, you know. And uh, I walk back into my cabin, and everyone's just like, oh, shit, rad boy, fucked your head up. You know, I'm going, no. I'm getting all remorseful, like, man, this is such a bad choice, you know? I'm never gonna touch boobies now. We're here at camp, like, this is where you're supposed to do it, you know? And, and I'm starting to, like, tear up, and all the kids are laughing at me and stuff, and I just go lay down in my bunk. And I asked my, my bunk mate, he had a Walkman. So I said, hey, man, let me borrow your Walkman. And so uh, he gives it to me, and I, I lay down in my bunk, and I start crying, you know. I said, fuck, man. I don't know how I'm going to do this shit now. I open up the cassette tape, and I look at the cover, and there's like an airplane that's crashed into a wall, it looks like. And I flip around the back, and there's these, these three white boys on there, and I'm like, man. And I've never seen anything like this before. I pop it open. It's an all-white cassette tape, and I just pop it into to the Walkman, and, uh, you know, I grew up, my parents listened to, you know, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and, you know, Deep Purple and the Beatles, and, you know, I never seen any shit like this before, so I, I'm laying there, and I fucking put the headphones on, and I hit play. What the fuck is this? Oh my god. These fucking beats and these rhymes had me fucking moving in my cabin and all the other guys in there 
they're looking at me they're like, what the hell is this guy doing? And I'm fucking bumping my head, you know? I've never heard anything like this before. These lyrics, these beats were going through me like nothing I ever experienced before. And I'm like, wow, I'm having an outer body experience, you know? This is nothing like the trippy music I ever listened to. Holy shit! I look at the freaking, at the tape again, and I say, the Beastie Boys. I say, God damn, these are three Jews, and I'm a Jew. These three Jews could make this sound? They could drop these rhymes? Ooh. All right, so, you know, this is my introduction to rap and hip-hop, you know, and I'm just like, ah. Oh. You know, I don't care about my haircut. I don't care about boobies. I don't care about shit. I'm just like, this is the fucking coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. So, you know, now I, I, just, I just can't wait to get back home from camp. You know, I got like another week in camp and I'm just going through the motions, you know. I'm like showing up in my leotard and fucking doing a high bar and shit, you know, and I'm going... Oh, man, I look stupid. The Beastie Boys would never wear anything like this, you know? I'm like, what the hell am I doing? So I, I, I get back home, and I finish my camp at Woodward, you know? And, and this, like, set me down a whole other path of different music, and it, 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 like, took everything that I grew up with and smashed it and fucking kicked it on the floor and gave me just, like, this whole new world. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I'm still, still till today... I listen to the Beastie Boys. Still till today, I listen to the early hip-hop, the early rap, because for me, that's, that like ties me back to my early experiences. But you know, it's like that decision of getting a horrible haircut opened up this whole new world to me, right? So it's like sometimes we're gonna make these bad decisions and, uh, and they're, they're gonna take us down this new path. And I can say that from that day that I left Woodward, I never put a pair of fucking leotards on and short shorts again, and, uh, and I'm proud of it. And uh, thank you all for listening to my story. That's the Beastie Boys Shave My Head. Get it for Nam Def Lisman, ladies and gentlemen. Get it for Nam Def, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Like that multimedia aspect that you brought to the whole thing. That was good. Tricks are good, ladies and gentlemen. You guys all right? All right. Our third storyteller is going to come up, add a little femininity to this whole operation. Just so everybody knows, it's not easy to come up here and tell a story. This is her first story she's telling here tonight. So if you're telling stories to each other, try to keep them to the minimum. Uh, there's a beautiful area outside as well. But uh, there's only two more stories tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And as they tell their story, try to be respectful of the storytellers because it takes a lot. And if you want to tell one, let me know and I'll stick up for you too. All right, fair enough? All right, cool. Ladies and gentlemen, it's her first story. She wanted another cigarette. I didn't, want, I didn't let her have it. So give her a warm welcome applause. The great Amaryllis, ladies and gentlemen, come on up here. She's been coming to this for a while and she somehow got inspired. Don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, suck well. Oh, wow. The lights are bright. Okay. All right. So, 
thank you everybody for coming and listening to all of our stories. Um, this is my first time doing this. I've never been on stage. I never had any public speaking experience. So I decided 2021, why not? You know, we've been through so much and I want to combat my fear and my fear is public speaking so here I am <laughs> and the story that I'm going to tell you tonight is um, the day that I got struck by a ball to my face this happened in the Marlins Stadium back in 2014 where um, you had like four little sea creatures in full costume running around a full lap around the field. You had the cheesastic water fountain statue of, like at the end of the field. I mean, going to the Marlins game, it was a really fun experience. And I took my kids. So it was my kids, my sister, her boyfriend, my boyfriend. It was a family adventure. We went, we had drinks, food, it was fun. So we sat in, where was the, oh, that's right. We sat in behind first base in the right field, so we had pretty good seats. Um, I thought I was safe because my boyfriend at the time had a glove for catching foul balls. He wanted to make sure that my kids and I were protected and everything was going to be a, a, a nice experience. So we had drinks, we had food, we sat down, we started watching the game. And nothing happened of it. Everything was going fine. Um, next thing you know, I was having a good time. I had a few drinks in me. My kids were fine. My sister was having a good time. Um, my boyfriend was sitting next to me with his glove in one hand and a beer in the other. So I'm thinking that he's prepared to protect me from any foul balls because I'm not really, I, I'm scared of anything going around my face because I just don't want anything to get ruined or broken. I mean, who would want that? Um, so um, around maybe an hour and a half into the game, there was a foul ball that went through behind me. It just like flew right past me and everybody was just looking back because we didn't know what happened. In these kind of games when there's a ball and there's a foul ball and it hits you know, the, um, the audience, it's a fun experience because somebody can go and catch it and keep it as a souvenir. So I'm looking back, everyone's looking back. It's like, did anybody catch it? But we really couldn't see because of all the commotion. There was too many people. And this time, during the Marlins game, there was a lot of people in the stadium, which is very rare nowadays. I mean, you get maybe less than 10,000 people in the stadium, but oh well, you know, that's another conversation. Um, next thing you know, he... Um, we looked behind, we didn't see anything, so we're just, we, we just pay attention back to the game. I'm turning around to look at Nick Punto, which was the Oakland Athletic. People, please just bring it down a little bit during the duration of her story, and then you can go back up afterwards, just a little less than normal volume, just for this time. 
we'd appreciate it. It's hard for it. It's your first story time. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you for keeping your voices down. <laughs> so, like, um, where did I leave off? Oh, that's right. There was a fall ball that went flying past us, and we looked back, and we thought well, we were going to see somebody catch that fall ball, but we didn't. Um, so we just kept, right, you know, we kept looking forward. As I was turning forward and I was watching Nick Punto, which was for the Oakland's athletic um, player, I don't know, who, who goes up and bats, I don't know. I, I'm not really well-versed in baseball, so whatever. But he was up to bat, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what I know. <laughs> um, next thing you know, as I'm looking forward, my kids are right next to me. My boyfriend, my boyfriend is to my left. My kids are to my right. We're in front row behind first base. Next thing you know... I just see white, that's it, that's all I see. I just see something white coming straight at me. And it was the baseball. It was the baseball coming at me at maybe 80 miles an hour, but straight towards my face. And it hit right on my right side of my face. I was shocked. I, 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 I didn't know what to make of it. All I, I just, all I remember was looking in my back, you know, seeing, oh, where, where, where did the foul ball go? Okay, this guy is a sucky player, apparently. I don't know. Okay, he threw a foul ball. Okay, let me see who catched it. No one catched it? Okay. I look forward to see what he's going to do next. And the next thing he knows, he hits me right in my face. I was beyond shocked. Next thing you know, the next 10 minutes were, it was incredible. I, it's something that I've never experienced in my life. Next thing you know, the ball hits my face. I feel the pain. I feel the blood just gushing out of my nose and my mouth. And my kids are screaming. I hear my kids screaming. I'm seeing myself just bleeding everywhere. There was a nurse behind me, luckily, who was there to, as soon as she assessed the situation, she was trying to calm me down, but I was bleeding everywhere. It, it was the most painful experience that I've ever endured. And for the next five minutes, I believe, I don't even know. I mean, it really seemed like it was just like for like maybe 10, 30 minutes, but I'm, it was pretty short-lived. It was like about five minutes. The nurse behind me was calming me down, telling me what to do. And next thing you know, since I was in the front row, all the staff members and all the medic were just rushing towards me. And they were assessing the situation, making sure that I was conscious enough to like get up and go into the wheelchair. So at this moment, they're coming, they're coming towards me. They're assessing the situation. And I tell them I'm okay, I can walk, I can breathe, I can understand what's going on. And 
they decided then to, since I was okay, they decided to grab me and make sure that I was able to go into the wheelchair, which led me to the stretcher. And on the stretcher, they whisked me off out of the field. So for 10 minutes, the game was stopped, all because I was bleeding and they needed to escort me out. So as I was, ex as, as I was being wielded off by the gurney, I hear applause. I hear, yay, awesome, woo. I'm like, well, what is that for? And they're like, then I realized it was for me. They were applauding me because I got hit by a ball and now I'm being wielded off in front of everybody? I mean, this is almost like 30,000 people in, in, in this arena, I mean, this stadium. And this was back in the days because obviously now they can't feel more than that. I mean, but I, I, I was astounded. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I'm bleeding. I'm suffering. My kids are suffering. And everyone's just applauding. I was like, okay, I guess that's just a regular thing that people do. I don't know. And I go to the hospital. They wheeled me off to UM Hospital. And I'm there in the hallway because apparently there's no room in UM Hospital. I've never been in a UM Hospital before. This is my first experience. And I was being left off in the hallway because they had no space. I'm like, okay, sure, fine. As long as I'm not dying, I guess that's okay. Um, as I was... As I was waiting there, I get a text from my friend. It's like, are you okay? I'm like, what is he talking about? Like, I just saw you on Yahoo Sports. I, 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 I honestly, I couldn't, I, I really couldn't comprehend what he was telling me. Obviously, I mean, I'm just shocked by the freaking ball going in my face. I'm bleeding everywhere. I don't know what's happening to me. And... I have this random friend that I haven't heard of in like maybe two years come and ask me if I'm okay because he saw me on Yahoo Sports. I'm like, what are you talking about? So he sends me the link. Yahoo Sports decided to, to post a, a blog about what happened and use my picture as, as, the, as the main feature. That day, I was wearing a tank top. And that tank top was a very low-cut tank top. I was wearing little short shorts. I mean, this is Miami. It was the summer. I mean, it's hot. I mean, I'm hot. You know, the weather is hot. I mean, I'm going to dress accordingly. But apparently, that got a lot of attention. And that's why they used that photo for that story, and that's how my friend come to find out that I was injured, because I didn't advertise this on social media, I'm sorry, but I'm kind of private in my life. Although, you know, nowadays everybody just wants to go ahead and share their world, I'm still a little bit private, so I didn't tell anybody that I was, you know, struck by a ball um, and whisked away right in front of everybody. So the fact that my friend reached out and told me that, I was like, freaked out and next thing you know I, I read the article and in the article I, I see that Nick Punto the, the baseball player who struck me by the ball had said oh he reached out to me 
and he wished me, you know, for a quick recovery. I'm like, I don't remember getting a call from him or a text from him or anything. So I don't know who he reached out, but apparently he reached out to an imaginary person. But um, I do have to say that the Marlins were really accommodating to my kids. You know, they were freaked out. They made sure that they got ice cream and souvenirs and at least just, you know, pretend and, you know, bribe them with things so they can forget about the horrible experience that they encounter at the Marlins Stadium. And to be quite frankly, uh, they never wanted to go back again. And neither did I. So that's my story. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Morales, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for her. Thank you, baby. Everybody, let's do a cheers to getting a boyfriend they can catch. How about that? A boyfriend they can catch. After that, yeah, that was his one fucking job. He ain't around anymore, is he? I wish he could catch, didn't he? All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the next guy that's going to be coming up in about 10 minutes after we take a break, I'm really looking forward to his story. He told one a couple weeks ago. I usually don't book another person that close, but he was just so great, and he was just a good dude. So I'm looking forward to the next story, ladies and gentlemen. And check out the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Go to UncleScotchy.com, and if you go to Bar Nancy, at all the posts, there's a lot of links that are, that, are, that are up. You can hear every story for the last 18 weeks that have happened over here, ladies and gentlemen. Get up for the 19th week of the storytelling extravaganza, ladies and gentlemen. 19th week. This is what we do every Wednesday. So I'm not just coming here telling people to stop talking. This is something that happens every Wednesday. And, and if you do, you'll be rewarded by a good story. So, ladies and gentlemen, last but not least up tonight, Mitch Grossfordner, ladies and gentlemen. Come on up, buddy. I like his style. I got you. Oh, yeah, now you know about the step now. Now I know about, now, now I know about that step. Last time I was like, The secret hey. step. All right. All right, it's good to be here. Good to be back. A lot of good stories, jams. I love BC Boys. Shout out to uh, MCA, rest in peace. To the, I don't remember your name, but the lady that got hit by baseball happens to the best of us. Go Marlins. Good story. All right, my story, uh, hold on. I, I, okay. My story um, happened when I was in my like, mid-20s. Around that time, I used to do a lot of music videos from like West Palm Beach, Broward, Dade. I used to do a lot of videos with um, my godbrother Keyboy, who was like my Yoda, my Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was cool. You know, I was under his wing. He taught me the game. We did a lot of low-budget rap videos or whatever. And um, it was cool, but he would always have me going on some like hood safari, like adventure somewhere shooting these music videos. And one in particular I remember was we were shooting in Lottie Hill. Now, before I go on, when you shoot low budget music videos for rappers, there's only like four locations you're gonna be in. A hood, a nicer hood, maybe if you got the money, a prison. And if you wanna be autistic, a strip club. The video I'm talking about was in two of those locations. Now, the first one was in Lottie Hill in Deepside. It's a really bad neighborhood, pretty sketchy, flock of heads everywhere. Shout out to Deepside and whatnot. Now, the rapper we were working with, now, um, he was kind of like, kind of had that prison build, you know, we're like big in the arms, cocky, 
but kind of like shimmy shimmy y'all in the leg area for some reason. You know, like every day was arm day, chest day, like, and I'll tatted it up and everything. She had gold rings on, gold watch, gold chains, gold bracelet, gold teeth, gold earrings, gold rimmed glasses. Guess what his name was? Close enough, close enough. It was actually called Goldie. His name was Goldie. Call me Goldie. I don't call another grown man Goldie for any reason. I don't give a damn, but fine, I'll call you Goldie. You're stronger than me. I mean, I got you in the legs, but I'll call you Goldie. Now, the, the crew was pretty much me and Kiwi. Kiwi operated a camera, director, cinematographer. I did everything else. Lighting, grip, that guy that holds a reflector, the boom op, sometimes a getaway driver. That was pretty much our little setup. And the first scene we shot was in his, in um, Goldie's hood, like a red Section 8 building. He was, he came out there in a bulletproof vest and I was like kind of nervous, like, fuck, are you gonna shot out? You got like, you got enemies already? We just shot, we didn't even start shooting the camera yet. Like, why we got, why you got a bulletproof vest on? He comes out in a bulletproof vest, whatever. And then as soon as the cameras came on, the entire neighborhood came in that music video. Everybody put in their Sunday best for some reason. Put on their like a fake ass aluminum chains that didn't spin. Everyone put on their best grills, even not real grills, but like that foil you get from gum wrappers, put them on their teeth and acted like they were grills. Everybody came. It was all good in the hood for a second. And then it got real hood real quick. I mean, real talk. I mean, first thing that happened, like some of the girls in there were like teenagers and they were in the video, and I was fine with that. We were all fine with that. And then they got all sexual with the camera, like twerking, getting all nasty. I'm like, that is uncomfortable to me because my name is M. Grovner, not fucking R. Kelly, so I really don't want to see that shit. <laughs> and I'm all right, all right, cool, 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 fine. I mean, some of the neighbors were even like, the, older, the old heads were like, what the fuck are y'all filming? Like, I don't know, they just came. And then, just when I think it couldn't get worse than that, it got worse because in that crowd, someone in the background said, you know what, this is my moment. I'm gonna kick it up a notch. And pulls out a fucking Uzi and shit and just casually just waves that bitch like all the way over in the air, just like, yeah, I'm in this video. I'm like, you know cops float around this fucking neighborhood. Why the fuck gonna pull out a Uzi that casual? And I'm just like holding something like a boom or something like that, get the audio, and I'm just like, this is not good. And the cop did pull around a few times, and luckily he, he just, as soon as he saw, as soon as the guy with the Uzi was getting all gangster, as soon as he saw the cop, as soon as the cop left, yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, this is not good. That was the first scene. And after we said we were rap, the guy with the Uzi just, I don't know why, he just like casually just put it in his pocket, like put it in his bag or whatever, and he's like, all right, my, my work career is done. I made this thing ghetto now. Okay. Now, the second thing was, the second location was gonna be in a strip club. Now, I'm thinking, okay, we go to a strip club. Goldie's like, no, nah, no, nah, I got it all set up in my house. You got what set up in your house? I got it all set up in my house. I'm like, I don't know how we're gonna make a strip club look believable in your two-bedroom apartment in a Section 8 neighborhood in Deepside, Lotta Hill. But he did. And I mean, when I say, like, this is what happened. I walk in the door, 
to the left of me was an actual bar. I'm not talking about a bar with just sodas and some big drinks and that's it. No, all that fucking equipment that fucking bar has, that little thing where you venture into vermouth, the shaker, they, he had that shit in his bar. He had drink specials, tip gratuity. It had not just a fucking tip drop, gratuity was added. He had a list of drinks. He had so much shit, it was a real looking bar. And to the right of me was a room. In that room had a couch, a, a stage built up kind of like the size of this uh, carpet. And the tucked in the back was like a DJ booth, which isn't really much. All DJ's gonna do is go, coming to the stage. Strip club, like imagine the pole's like right here and like one kind of like ratchet little chick just goes dancing on it. You know what I'm saying? You know, Goldie's, he's rapping around it. We're filming him. He's like, yeah, I got bitches. I'm making rain on these bitches. He's getting a massage. Like, I'm, I'm going to get a massage on these bitches. He's at the bar. I'm making, I'm popping bottles with these bitches. Now, like, towards, like, a hallway, towards where the master room is, you know, like, where you, you normally have, like, closets to put your toiletries and um, cleaning supplies in there. He turned that into VIP booths. Those closets turn into VIP booths with a shag, velvety, like, curtain or whatever. You can get a lap dance in a fucking closet or something. And that was his bar, and I was, just, I was a strip club. I'm like, okay, we're shooting it. We film it. He likes it. And then as I'm wrapping up, as I'm packing up, I'm locking up equipment and stuff like that. Someone, there's a knock on the door, and I open it, and there's, like, a bunch of guys come in. I'm like, are we shooting more people? I thought we were done shooting. Goldie's like, no, no, these are the regulars, man. These are the regulars. They ain't, they ain't going here for the video. I'm like, you got fucking regulars coming here? Someone came here and said, you know what? I like the environment here. Scholars ain't got shit on this. Goldie's is where it's at. And not only that, like, as soon as I said that, as soon as I thought that, actually, another knock on the door came, and then um, some more girls came. And Goldie's like, well, listen, I don't want to rush out, but y'all got to hurry up and pack up because the girls are here to start their shift, okay? So you're more than welcome to stay, but we got you know, to get, you know, get the club rolling on here, all right? And I'm like, this genius ghetto-ass motherfucker over here, that, is the mo that should be in Black Enterprise. I'm saying, like, that is the American dream. If you can't get it, then you make it, motherfucker. That's what it's all about. I mean, shit. I mean, I felt bad for the strippers because where does that put you in the totem pole of scripting? I mean, like, what are these heifers at if you really think about it? You got them at, like, okay, um, at the time, King of Diamonds, Scarlet's, Cheetah Club, PTs, don't judge me, um, <laughs> Vegas Cabaret, The Office, Pink Pony, Coco's, Goldie's. And you're going to, like, you're trying to look your best for, like, the VIPs. And, like, what is it to get in the VIP section at Goldie's? It's a fucking closet where some girl can give you a lap dance. Where does that put you? And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? And I'm probably sure every one of y'all probably thinking that, too. Is like, why the fuck didn't I think of that one time? Florida rent in general is not cheap. Expenses are not cheap. FPL alone is not fucking cheap. So why in the hell not? If you got low self-esteem and you want to script for like a few, four or five people, go right ahead. Make it happen. 
So when I'm drinking last, like the last shot of the night, I guess, for the storytelling thing, I'm taking a shot for Goldie. Because one time he did talk to me. And he said, one of these days, I'm going to have my own strip club. A real strip club. Bigger than King of Diamonds. Bigger than Tootsies. Bigger than Goldfinger. And I motherfucking believe him. I believe in his dream to make a titty bar like no one ever. Solid gold bar strip bars. Solid gold bar. Solid gold microphone. I don't give a fuck. I want to see Goldie's operational. I'm taking a shot for Goldie. All right, thank you. That's my story. And I'm taking a shot for Mitch, ladies and gentlemen. Give it for Mitch Grossover, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for telling a great story. Thanks for bringing your friends. Thanks for everybody that came out to hear some stories, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate it. You never know what you're going to get over to the extravaganza, ladies and gentlemen. And this has been going for a little bit. And things are starting to open up. Things are getting cool. So just tell your friends. Uh, tell them about Breckenridge. Tell them about the cheese. But tell them about the stories. Because it's going to keep getting better. And take care of my boy Christian right over there, ladies and gentlemen. When he shakes that thing, you stop. That's a Nancy break. You're telling the story, that's a Nancy break. <laughs> Hope to see you guys next week. Once again, we're doing tandem stories next week. There's going to be two people at a time telling the story. And two of them are here right now. I'm happy about that. Uh, see you guys next week. Thanks a lot, babe, ladies and gentlemen. Fake bell. Bang. See you guys. Thank you. <laughs>